innovation's a bit like ancient Greece. It's a landscape full of myths and legends. Most of them are harmless enough, but there are one or two which can seriously get in the way of effective innovation management. Let's take a look at a couple of examples. Now, myth number one concerns boom, the light bulb moment. You know, that moment in the cartoons when that light bulb flashes above someone's head and there you have it, innovation. Except, of course, you don't. Because, as we've seen, innovation involves a journey. One that moves an idea through testing, refining, improving it, to finally creating something that hopefully can deliver value to an end user. Which brings us to our second myth, that innovation is a solo act. Now, it's easy enough to believe in a world where innovation happens through men and women who have a great big S across their chest. They somehow have that superpower to create innovation. The reality is, of course, that innovation isn't like that. It's always been a multiplayer game. Even in those situations where we can identify a particular entrepreneur, someone who gives their name to a product or a process innovation, it's a fair bit. They will have had plenty of help along the way. So, if innovation is a journey involving many different tasks on the road to creating value, then it's going to be hard to do it all on your own. Quite apart from the physical challenge of doing so much, there's a need for different kinds of knowledge to contribute to the process. Innovation's all about working with knowledge spaghetti, weaving together different strands of technical, market, legal, financial, all kinds of knowledge to create value. And it's unlikely that any single individual will have all of that. And if we're looking for radical breakthrough innovation, then sometimes we might want to combine very different knowledge sets, bridging across from different worlds. We know that such recombinant innovation has been the starting point for some key innovations. For example, Henry Ford's assembly line began as a moment of insight when William Klan, one of his engineers, was walking past a meatpacking plant in Chicago and noticed how the butchers there were systematically disassembling carcasses on a moving line. Or, as we've seen, the key insight which underpinned the successful social innovation of the Aravind eye care clinics was bringing fast food preparation and service techniques to bear on the problem of cataract surgery in rural India. Now, for Thomas Edison, this was a very clear lesson. His invention factory in New Jersey was not simply a place where he sat and dreamed up all his wonderful inventions by himself, but rather a meeting place for diverse ideas. The factory undoubtedly made a big contribution to the early 20th century, but Edison did it not just by himself, but by involving many other people. What he did was to take engineers and scientists from a variety of different sectors and put them all together in the same space. They worked alongside each other, they ate and drank together, even slept in the place sometimes when projects were running late. It must have smelled terrible, but that hothouse became a crucible in which many key innovations were born. Which brings us to myth number three. This is the one that sees the world somehow as split into two kinds of people. Creators, the ones responsible for coming up with innovation, 
and consumers, the ones who adopt those innovations. That is, of course, a very artificial split. And the reality is, the more we research, the more we realise that users are far from passive in innovation. They have ideas and insights, and they can make a big contribution to shaping innovation by bringing that to bear. And their understanding of the context in which innovations have to work means that using their input can help ensure that innovations diffuse widely and rapidly, because they're compatible with that context. It's hard to forget that wonderful scene in Monty Python's film The Life of Brian, in which the small group representing the People's Front of Judea huddle together plotting the downfall of the invading army. Reg, their ringleader, asks the question, what have the Romans ever done for us? And is met with an increasingly long list, which includes sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, fresh water and public health. If you haven't seen the film, it's worth a look. Well, in similar fashion, we could ask the same kind of question. What have users ever done for innovation? And it won't take long before there's a similarly long list of exceptions which prove the rule that users are a pretty potent force. For example, deep breath. Around the house we have the vacuum cleaner, the dishwasher, bleach, the miracle mop. If there are children around the place, then we can add to that list non-spilled cups, foldable pushchairs, disposable nappies, Q-tips. If we go out in the street, you might use a foldable umbrella to help you run to your pickup truck, turning on your windscreen wipers as you drive to work where you'll find your IT system storing things on Dropbox, perhaps running on Linux, browsing with Firefox, connecting via Apache servers, and if you're still producing physical printout and want to make a correction, brushing on liquid paper to correct the mistake. If you're lucky enough to have the day off, well, you might go windsurfing, skateboarding, mountain biking, perhaps capturing your adventures on a GoPro camera. And if you're unlucky enough to have an accident while doing so, your hospital will be full of hundreds of other user innovations developed by nurses, doctors, technicians, porters and so on. All of them are reminders of what user innovation can do for us. And that's not even the full answer to our question. Because these are just specific examples where we have a name and an identity for our user innovator. Behind them, there's a hidden army of hundreds of thousands of others in workplaces, on farms, around the homes, in offices, shops, churches, scout groups, in fact, everywhere. What these hidden user innovators share is the challenge of a problem for which they come up with and try out a workaround, a hack, a solution to help deal with it. We're only just beginning to get a measure of how much innovation begins with user ideas. Studies by Nesta in the UK, for example, suggest that close to 10% of product innovations and 15% of process innovations begin in this fashion. And that's almost certainly an underestimate. Smart companies recognise the huge value which employees, as users of their processes, can contribute through suggesting improvements. Companies as diverse as Toyota, Liberty Global and Fujitsu regularly receive thousands of ideas and these translate into savings running into millions. So, 
Having knocked down some of these myths surrounding innovation, we should perhaps pause and try and pick up a few of the pieces. If the myths don't hold up, what lessons are left which can help us manage innovation more effectively? Let's summarise. Innovation's a journey, not a single event, and so there are many different tasks involved in creating value from ideas. It's a multiplayer game, and one in which diversity matters. People involved in our multiplayer innovation know different things, and the more we can bring different viewpoints to bear, the more chance we have to enrich our innovation. Sometimes the knowledge they have to offer isn't even formalised. It's fingertip, tacit knowledge, stuff we know but we can't always express. That's particularly the case when we think of many of those user innovations, which emerge from a context where users are often frustrated, they have a sense of what's going to make things different, even if they can't always articulate it. And we often talk about getting out of the box in innovation, but by bringing in people who, by definition, have been inhabiting a different box, we can often stimulate innovation in radically new directions. But it's not just enough to bring diversity into our innovation teams. We also need to think hard about how to ensure inclusivity. Who do we want to bring into our innovation process and whose voices are we not hearing? For example, innovation studies repeatedly show that bringing in users is an extremely important part of ensuring acceptance of new things. Users understand their context, and so by bringing in their perspectives, we give ourselves a much better chance of creating something which is compatible and which will diffuse more widely and quickly. Now, we've had this principle for a long time. Back in the 1960s in the UK, the Tavistock Institute carried out some famous work on what became known as socio-technical systems design. Put simply, they were using approaches which could hear the voices of people involved in working with new technology and mobilise their insights and ideas to shape the technologies to be more effective. And one example was work with the National Coal Board looking at new coal mining technology. Now, at that time, a powerful new approach based on advanced technology was the long wall method of coal getting, a long name for a simple idea. It involved cutting two shafts in parallel and then creating a thin shaft between them. The coal behind this long wall could be cut by automatic machinery and conveyed to the parallel shafts and thence to the surface. And the potential productivity gains from this were huge. But when it was first installed, the results were very disappointing. The Tavatok team soon found out why. The ways in which miners worked were essentially based around small, cohesive teams who literally depended on each other for their lives. But the new system didn't fit their team-based ways of working. But it could be adapted to include them, especially if the miners were involved in modifying the design. The results were spectacular in terms of productivity improvement going well beyond the original design capacity of the machinery. And this kind of approach has become best practice in so many sectors. Whether we're trying to install a new computer system, getting people to adopt a new logistics approach, take on new ways of shopping, the same thing holds. 
Involve the users, get them to shape a piece of technology in the fashion that best fits their world, and it will operate more effectively. Underpinning this, of course, is the idea of inclusion, and it applies widely in fields as diverse as healthcare, farming, and manufacturing. But it does raise a question of how we make sure we can hear the voices of users who may have things to say, but not necessarily the ability to say it clearly and provide a coherent input to our innovation processes. So, to summarize, when we think about innovation management, we need to be clear, we are probably going to have to break up some of the myths and assumptions which can get in the way of effectively doing so. In particular, we need to recognize that innovation is a journey with many different tasks, and therefore there's a real need for many different people to help with those tasks and bring in their knowledge. It's not a solo act, it's a multiplayer game. And we really need to bring those different knowledge sets together, the tacit as well as the explicit, and weave them together to create value. Diversity matters, particularly because it allows us to access a wide range of different viewpoints. And these can contribute to the innovation task, both improving the front-end design, but also by accelerating downstream diffusion because ideas developed with the insights from users can have a better chance of being compatible with their world. But if we're going to involve users, if we're going to involve different perspectives, if we're going to work with diversity, then we have to find methods to make sure we can deal with our aspiration towards inclusivity. We need tools and methods to bring people in. Mm -hmm.